0: oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Scott Shea. He is a leading businessman, thought leader, and author of two widely read books. Scott co-founded Signature Bank in 2001. The bank has become one of the best banks in New York for private business owners. Scott's second book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion, and atheism has been recognized as one of the best books of 2018 by Mosaic authors and earned a finalist award from National Jewish Books. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Scott Shea. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Scott. It's good to be here, and I can easily remember your name. Right. Namesakes are quite easy, right? Now, it's interesting. You've written a book about faith, Uh, and the interesting thing to me is that The book's called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And you basically set out to write the book you wanted to read, right? You you were looking for a book that took religious faith seriously in the modern world and in dialogue with atheism, but wasn't adversarial towards it, where there actually could be a kind of open, free exchange. And and you you were kind of surprised, it seems, that that book wasn't around or available. Yeah, I had... Talked to all sorts of people who read
1: Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Why God is Not Great, How God Poisons Everything, How Religion Poisons Everything, uh, Sam Harris' Letter to a Christian Nation, and onward and onward. And people would ask me because they knew I'm in the business world and I'm a believer. And I don't wear it on my shoulder, but I don't wear it on my sleeve, but people know it. And they would ask me all sorts of questions. So I wanted a book I could refer to them. And remarkably, I couldn't really find one. Either the books were very narrowly geared toward one particular denomination of a religion, or they almost expected you to believe before you, you read the book. And they, they didn't really dialogue with what I thought were the key criticisms of, of the atheists. And and some of them also tried to prove God. And I, I really don't think it's possible to prove God. I think it's rational to believe in God and rational not to believe in God, which is why atheists have
0: embraced the
1: conversations that I've had with them.
0: And so much of this life is like this, right? There are things that we believe, for instance, most Americans believe that the way we treat women in our cultural context is better in an unqualified sense than the way women are treated in saudi arabia but there's nothing metaphysically where you can prove that and yet and yet we think it's rational to believe it we don't think it's it's an irrational claim and yet there's no empirical evidence that says you know there's no science law of physics or something that you that you could calculate they would say oh of course this gender equation is better right but People don't think it's irrational to believe it. It, it. There might be a component of faith that, well, our cultural system, we find more compelling and more just. But there's lots of beliefs like that. Is God almost like that where I might not be able to empirically prove it, but it's not an irrational kind of faith commitment. In fact, it's it, it's, it's, it, it, it can be a very rational faith commitment, you argue. So here's what faith is.
1: Uh, here's what good faith is, because I think there's good faith and there's bad faith. I think good faith is... Faith based on evidence, based on things that you can verify in terms of the evidence. There's always going to, there can frequently be evidence the other way. And and bad faith is faith that's just related to taking someone's word for it. You know, whoever you believe is your God, King, spokesperson, or ideology. Well, I don't need to actually look at the facts because that's what so-and-so told me or that's what my party told me, or that's what my cult told me. And that's really so. I do think that one can make an empirical observation about um, the treatment of women, the treatment of LGBTQ plus people, of any sort of people, race, creed, in different groups by doing an empirical analysis, and then coming up with what you think are conclusions in good faith. But I think just to say, oh, my group believes this, or this is what I've read on social media, I think that's bad faith. And unfortunately, in today's era, so many people are taking truth and are taking evidence, are taking their sort of conclusions from what they're told to believe. And one of the things that I think is important about monotheism is that we're all endowed. I mean the the fundamental belief of of, of the the fundamental of the Bible first starts is we all have a divine spark. We all have the ability to reason things out, and we can make good decisions or bad decisions. But it really heavily depends on whether or not we're going to be honest with ourselves and honest in, in exploring the data.
0: There's a writer that. Wrote a book on epistemology and how we know what we know, named Leslie Newbegin. It was written in the late '90s. Yeah, and he says that faith is the way to knowledge. He said that anybody, like if you go into the chemistry class when you're a junior in high school or sophomore in high school, you can't wait till you've done all the experiments in the textbook yourself. You have to kind of trust the system a little bit. But oh, then he yeah. says, doubt is the way to the truth, and yeah. it's and it's this inner it's this complex interplay of believing and doubting. That gets you to truth. In the last chapter of his book, is certainty is the way to nihilism. That when we try to get past this delicate interplay, whether you're religious or irreligious, of 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 trusting in things is the way to knowledge, and yet critical inquiry and de- doubt is the way to truth and verification. He's like, if we try to get beyond that to a place that where there's rock solid certainty, we're going to become nihilists. Does that oh, sound about yeah. right? About, right that, that this kind of everybody, whether and this is what I find interesting about your book. It seems like you're saying. Everybody has objects of faith, um, has to make, again, has to make evidence based, try to make evidence based moves in the direction of good faith, whether you're religious or not. Right? I mean, just to believe we're not in the matrix right now, right, takes good faith that we're not in some computer simulation like that could be true. Um, so that seems like that there's this dance that but it's not just religious believers <coughs> have to do it right. Everybody has to do this dance. Well, you, you really nailed it in this sense. If people who
1: are certain, I get really concerned about people who are overly certain. I don't think you can ever be certain by the way, I think with faith has to come down sure. and if you look at the Bible, who are the people who end up being the folks who learn the truth? They're always the people at the margins. I mean Moses you know sort of the greatest you know the 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 the, the, the hero of the bible he is someone who's at many margins. You know, he's the he, uh, uh, the son of Israelite slaves. He's in the palace, but he knows it's not quite right. He's willing to stand up when he sees oppression take place. He runs to the wilderness. Even when he returns back, he's always not quite with the Israelites because of his history of always being on the outside. And you see that with in the book of Joshua, Rahab you know who lives literally in the city walls and she's the only one who sees the truth onward and onward every most of the prophets the hero Samson you agreed you know Samuel Jeremiah Ezekiel they're all people who live on the margins uh they're people who have written, to a certain degree and they and they criticize folks who are too certain they criticize the priesthood the kingship all the people who know with certainty that they're telling the truth and that they, have the, that they know the truth. So I think you yeah. really nailed it. Yeah, Doubt it's
0: interesting. is critical. Yeah, and what's interesting about your book is that it seems to mirror the biblical tradition in that I think we have certain parts in our culture today, religious, cultural pockets, that demonize doubt, right? And if you doubt, you're out. And then there's other parts, kind of the new atheists and certain other cosmopolitan crowds that valorize doubt. If you're not doubting and detached and cynical, all the time, you're not mature. And I think what the biblical tradition does is engages doubt. It, 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 it neither demonizes it nor valorizes it. It's just part of the journey of faith in the pilgrimage of life. And that seems to be the approach of your book, that, that you're neither demonizing um, modern doubts uh, you know, about God and the life of faith, nor are you saying that that's the only way to be a sophisticated modern person is to be detached and cynical and doubting all the time, that you're Your book is a real invitation to engage doubt, it seems, um, in in the journey of faith. So
1: it's interesting, you know, on book tour, before it was sort of interrupted prior to, you know, with COVID-19. And during the research for the book, I talked to a lot of atheists. And I love talking to atheists. And again, I'm not trying to convert anybody uh, because that's not appropriate. Um, And by the way, for most people, the stakes are too high. You know On both sides. But I do r- love having those conversations. But I here's what I find that's interesting, and it feeds into your point, which is there are really two kinds of atheists. There's what I call golden rule atheist, and I talk about this in my book. And then there's idolatrous atheist or self deifying. So I am willing to make common cause with any atheist who believes in the golden rule, which the way Hillel summed up the whole Bible, an ancient sage said, and this is in the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, it's all over, all over the, all over it. it, He sums up the whole Bible as saying, don't do, don't treat anyone else the way you wouldn't want to be treated. The rest is commentary. Go learn. What that essentially says is you're just, it, it riffs off of the beginning of the Bible, which is that everybody has a spark of divinity. We're all brothers and sisters. We all have to show each other that same sort of respect And care, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, Uh, 19 uh, verse 18, the core of the Bible. And if we do that, if we just go by the golden rule, we're going to be good whether we're atheists, uh, believers, whatever. But here's where atheists can go off the rails, which is if they believe in something else that they don't call God, but is essentially that an ideology. You know, let me take the common example, a common example, communism. You know, that was a distinctly non-believing ideology, so-called. But here's the thing about idolatry that people don't get. And this is really an important point, And it's one of the important points in my book is that we think idolatry is like bowing down to statues. What idolatry really is, is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings, people like us, ideologies, natural processes, or in the ancient world, animals, that not so much anymore. So we may have thought that we licked the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago, but in reality, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, and I can say, you know, Mao, I can go on and on and on. They set themselves up as God Kings where the ideology was what was most important and what they said went. So Stalin was able, to, was able to starve, kill all the kulaks, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, send tens of millions of people to the gulag. Mao caused the death of 75 million of his Chinese comrades and said, you know, he was ascribed to have said, if 300 million died to ensure the victory of the Chinese Communist Party, that would be okay too. In other words, he wouldn't want to treat himself that way. Stalin wouldn't have wanted to treat, wouldn't want to send himself to the gulag, but they self deify because the ideology becomes the God. And you find that in small ways too, in micro ways too, where people have ideologies, maybe it's scientism or other ideologies that they ascribe. They ascribe things to that ideology that are, can't be ascribed, and they end up, you know, essentially. Saying that they end up essentially self deifying and I just want to make one more—I just want to make one more quick point on this because now that I'm on a little bit of a roll here, which is it's not only on a macro basis, but it's on a micro basis too. So how did Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and the list goes on and on and on? Kevin Spacey, whoever you want to put on this list, how did they get away with what they got away with? Because in their industries, they didn't say they had superpowers and they didn't have armies. But they were unquestioned and unquestionable. What they said was truth. They set themselves up like idols. And if you were on the other side of them, you could be crushed because they did have super authority over people's careers.
0: Yeah. Paul Tillich, the 20th century theologian, says that um, we have these ultimate concerns, right? And he said, God is the ultimate concern about which we ought to be ultimately concerned. but sounds like what you're saying is idolatry is anytime something becomes our ultimate concern that's creaturely and not the creator that whether it's food, sex, wealth, power, ideology at the time we're looking for that thing to be the ultimate concern to give us existential fulfillment then immediately that thing will become a sort of an overlord over us right and really destroy humanity it it the, the horrors of humanity all arose
1: from one form or another of idolatry no question about that and the horrors of humanity also came when religions idolized their own structures or institutions and didn't really recognize the course of what the bible was talking about that's why the prophets are always yelling at the priesthood at the at the, at the temple Hey, we're not saying, you know, God isn't interested in your sacrifices on, on the altar. God is interested that you treat the widow and the orphan well, that you divide the land equitably, that you don't oppress people. And we keep losing sight of that. I mean, it, it's 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 it, in a certain kind of way. Human history raises <laughs> a tragedy. We keep facing tests that we fail.
0: You argue in the book that that it's not. The abandonment of religion uh, in the modern age that that um, kind of leads to liberation and freedom. It's actually uh, the Enlightenment is at least parts of it are rooted in the biblical tradition, right? And these Enlightenment thinkers take up concepts about covenant and law and dignity, and paired with Enlightenment philosophy, um, develop uh, you know people like. Um, Milton and Hobbes and and and, and Grotius and people like this you mentioned uh, Thomas Paine you talk about the book yeah. they they it, it's not as though they weren't modern people but they were they're modern and they were coming up in an age of scientific inquiry and philosophical revolution but at the heart of it they they were rediscovering freedoms that were at the heart of the biblical tradition right and and that we owe as much you argue to to the bible and the biblical tradition for the kind of late modern free way of life as we do to secular philosophy. Oh,
1: I, I think that's unquestionable. I mean, I think that all of the enlightenment, I mean, look, where did the idea of limited and divided government come from? It came from people like the you mentioned, like, like you, know, you know, Grotius and others who are reading the Bible and the, you know, and frankly, some, and a lot of the British thinkers um, pre and post the civil war. And they read the Bible to say nobody should have a monopoly on truth or power. Therefore, let's what did what did the Bible do? Well, it had a proto republic in that you had the king, but the king was only allowed to be commander in chief and carry out the laws. The king always had to have a a Bible at his hand and write a Bible. Actually, he was commanded to write a Bible. He was also constrained by the Sanhedrin, the judicial branch, and the priesthood, both of which had their own sources of funds. So they weren't dependent on the king and the prophets, who were, if you will, a fourth estate. And when the people really didn't want to do what the king did, they would tell the king, and the king would back down. For example, in the case in 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 in, um, in the book of Samuel, when uh, uh, Saul puts an oath on everybody and short Jonathan, his son is about to be executed because of that. The people say, no, we won't accept that. Or in after Solomon dies, when his son Rehoboam um, tries to, uh, tries to, uh, to impose certain things. And, and the people divide, decide they're going to divide. They people essentially divide the kingdom between the two king, two tribes and the 10 tribes. And Robo going to go and fight and, the people say no. And God says, don't do it. The people said no. So there's been this divided, uh, the idea of no one having a monopoly on power, no one having total super authority is a very deep one. I mean, I thought Eric Nelson's book, and I highly commend it to you and to your listeners, Eric Nelson's book, The Hebrew Republic, which is a scholarly book, but it is, it's not an easy book, but it's a great book, um, really brings this out because look, Even reason can become an idolatry if it goes down the wrong path. And so we need this divided, we need people to engage with each other. And and that's so critical. I just, and I'll say one last thing on this. I talked about the golden rule, which was in Leviticus 19, verse 18. The one passage before that is so critical because it says something, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but it says something like rebuke, And I'm going to translate the Hebrew as it's a funny word. It's a good word. But it says rebuke, debate, engage, question your neighbor. Don't hate him. Otherwise, the sin will be upon you. And the passage is really saying that when we don't engage with others, when we don't argue with others, it leads to hate because we other them. And what we really need to do to fully fulfill the golden rule, to fully fulfill that nobody's got a monopoly on truth, to fully not self-deify is to recognize that, yeah, let's have an argument and let's try to jointly
0: arrive as close to truth as we
1: can because nobody knows it for sure.
0: I, I find it interesting when you talk about this kind of interaction of enlightenment thought and in, in the biblical tradition, it seems to me there's a reason why, there are still Jews and Christians and Muslims in the world, and there aren't people worshiping Zeus and Odin by and large, right? Because these biblical traditions are philosophically more sophisticated than people think, and they evolve, right? You have like people like Maimonides, you know, uh, and other Islamic scholars, and Thomas Aquinas grappling with Aristotle in the philosophical revolution <laughs> in the 13th century, and totally remaking s- certain kinds of biblical philosophical thought. And even today, with you find you know people like John Polkinghorne and others, you know, these. These complicated uh, uh, physicists and things that are able to take things like quantum mechanics and relativistic physics and and reimagine the biblical tradition in light of this—is this part of the resiliency of it? It's not; it, it's philosophically um, pliable in some ways. Like the biblical tradition can—it's—it's uh, it's not so much a philosophy per se, but it uses philosophy to to, to disseminate yep. the truth and it can grapple with philosophical schools. And is that part of the reason why there's still? A kind of intellectual robustness to this tradition, even in late modernity.
1: Yes. So I'll give you, if I give you just a couple of um, examples, because I, and and first, let me just say this: the the Bible, the power of the Bible, and the power of this, the power of, of monotheistic tradition is it doesn't ordinarily just say do this, do that. There's there's some of that. Don't get me wrong, but it tells, it teaches faith through stories. And stories tend to be powerful. They stick with people. And also, stories are pliable. They can change meaning over time. So, there's the story of the revolt of Korach in, in, in Numbers, in, in Bamibar, in, in the book of Bamibar, in Numbers. And now, when I read it today, Korach to me seems like the original intersectionalist or the original populist. When I read, when I read as a young child, the um, story of the, the, in the chapter three of uh, Adam and Eve and the snake, you know, yes, as a child, I might read that as a story about a two people, a man, a woman, and a snake, and a tree. But now I read it totally differently. I read it as a story of, of, of what is motivating. I think about why is the snake doing this? Well, in the last two, in the last few verses of the first chapter, it says that humans can eat fruit and fruit and vegetables and, and and animals can only have vegetables. So there's a resentment. The snake who says everything the snake says is true, by the way. But he is resentful because he's the cleverest. He's almost human, maybe even more in a certain kind of way. The snake character don't have to believe in a snake. I don't believe the first 11 chapters are ever meant to be, ever, ever meant to be taken literally. But
0: the dawn, you had... you had Yeah, isn't that shared. the way the Bible works? The beginning of the Bible is sort of this kind of cosmic metaphorics, deeply symbolic, and so are the end, whether you're talking about the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, this picture of the Messianic age also is kind of deeply symbolic in ways that are hard to... And it seems like in between these cosmic metaphoric, deeply symbolic, universal dramas, you get the nitty gritty of history. And the book ended between these cosmic things are as a world much more like the one you and I live in. Well, if you read the first 11 chapters
1: of the Bible, those, I think, if you read them carefully, they're meant to be taken as, as, as allegory. And look, you can't read Yehes—you can't read Ezekiel Yechezkel, without recognizing this fellow is speaking in metaphors. He's doing it self-consciously speaking in metaphors. So he didn't mean for anybody to take what he was saying literally. he'd be surprised he'd say "What are you? you weren't really listening to me if you were taking me literally? Please listen to me again
0: and i so it's I remember teaching undergrads a couple of years a few years ago, and I showed them a picture of of a bald eagle boxing a big brown bear in you know boxing gloves in a ring. Not one of these undergrads knew that it was a cartoon about Russia and the United States, hmm. because it's I and mean, so often isn't that where we're like with the biblical world, right? We read some of these symb- symbolic stories, and just like these undergrads, because they were a few years past the Cold War, they just didn't know the symbols that would have been so common. Oftentimes, there are these biblical symbols that that the readers probably would have intuitively had, but because we're centuries away, we need biblical interpreters to help us get back into the mindset so that we can listen in on the symbols, right? Well, look, people, there's
1: the 10 plagues in Egypt. Each of those plagues relate to a relate to a Egyptian idolatry, each of them. But we've lost, we lost track of that. We actually are blessed today because we have the benefits of archeology. span The people at the time knew exactly why each plague was, was put into place. Cause it was, it was a negation of each level of Egyptian idolatrous belief. We lost track of that, but now we've regained that. And that's a wonderful thing about living in this age is that we can now understand. It. We can now understand that the 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 loan words that the Bible took from the Egyptian text. Miriam is a Egyptian, uh is an Egyptian name, Aaron is an Egyptian name, Moshe, the Bible itself says is an Egyptian name. We can we can we have a, such a greater sense of that. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing in the modern era. Um is to be able to is to be able to understand this at a much deeper level.
0: I'm struck. In the in your book, you quite specifically reject the God of the Gaps theory and irreducible complexity and these things. Because this is a very popular um theistic argument today, right? Intelligent design that okay, if you just look at, you know, irreducible irreducible complexity, the mousetrap is irreducibly complexible and you take one part out, it doesn't work, and you look at these places where there's irreducible complexity and you say, well that's 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 god and and the problem is right uh we you point to irreducible complexity next year in a journal like nature or something they show they show how it's not irreducible complexity or something right. and and you say i mean it's interesting because you argue now it's not the god of the gaps that uh that that draws you closer to god it's seeing that god doesn't leave these gaps that the 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 universe is this place where it's not it's not controlled by demons or water sprites or randomness that there's these orders and patterns and that when you get closer to seeing the beauty of that that's what really connects you closer to the divine right so science for you has become something that seems to draw you into the divine not push you away from it oh absolutely i think and what and learning about science
1: brings you into the wonder of creation but look here's the problem with the atheist argument that you know we just sort of popped up here is that after a while, because of the complexity and the and the unlikelihood that a universe like ours could exist, we the science had an idea that well, since it's so unlikely, let's think about other possibilities like the multiverse. You know that there's an infinite number of universes. Because here's the problem for you and I to be having this conversation, whether it's on. You know, using technology in person, but just having the intelligence to have a a spoken conversation with each other. How do we get there? Well, there's about 22 constants in the universe that all needed to be finely tuned. But in Martin Rees's uh, wonderful book, The Six Constants, he talks about the chances. Now, he's a he. Sir Rees is a uh, is a atheist, but if you just take the numbers, each of the constants, you know, whether it be the weak magnetic force the strong magnetic force the force that pushes galaxies and 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 big and matter away and and the and the forces that cohese matter in the universe the chances of each of them the chance of one of them being the number that they are is you know one in some cases followed by 30 40 zeros the chances of all six much less all 22 being in the In the form that they are, are minute, beyond minute. They're infinitesimal because not only do you have to get each, not only getting one of those lotteries, winning one of those lotteries doesn't help you. You have to get like six lotteries in a row. And not only that, but the initial conditions of creation have to be just so. Or even if those, even if those one in a gazillion possibilities are true. Come out to be true, you still wouldn't have life, you still wouldn't have carbon, you still wouldn't have any possibility of intelligent anybodys talking to each other. So you have to revert to the multiverse and you know which again is something no one has ever provided any evidence for. So I don't think I, I think at the same time, it is rational. It is possible to believe that we are one luck hell of a lucky group of people who were just happen to be here through infinite universes and in this universe in a almost you know minuscule percentage of being here it is possible but i actually think that on a fundamental basis the atheists in that case have a harder argument than the believers because it's not about the gaps it's about us even potentially being here to discuss this or anything else And I think with respect to evolution, that's a second concept. But I think here, um, I would say, if you want to believe in the multiverse, that's fine. I don't have any problem. But it's not a showstopper. It's certainly no QED.
0: It's interesting. There's a book by Christian Smith called What is a Person? And he's a Christian and sociologist. I think he's at Notre Dame. And in it, he argues that, in the beginning of the book, he argues that most of his colleagues in social science who are irreligious and it, it, with the their political commitments almost to to a person they're all pretty progressive they're all into universal human rights and these sorts of things just the problem is the way they talk about the human person couldn't underwrite their political commitments oftentimes they have a reductive view of the human person and their discipline which kind of doesn't and he kind of argues that you need something soul like you need this kind of individual dignity of the person almost like the image of god or something but he's like mm-hmm. I'm not asserting something metaphysical here he's he's saying you know I'm just saying it's it, something so like is like an emergent property of of, of the human system and and it's the proper seat of like human dignity and and it seems like that's a pretty common occurrence right that people who may be atheists in belief often start talking about politics or human rights and all of a sudden they're using truth with a capital t and metaphysical language they're not saying ah you know that the world's all just matter in motion so why does it all matter anyway and it's all random. i mean it's almost like they borrow a kind of theistic sense of purpose, right? When talking about ethics and the way society ought to be, well, it's almost like borrowing from the theistic worldview for the purpose of underwriting their kind of golden rule like politics, right? Yeah. Look, I read an article that really got me just riffing on what you're saying. I read an
1: article yesterday in Asia times by Jonathan Tenenbaum, who's a great writer, by the way, and on science. And he pointed out something he was examining AI he's written a great series on AI and he and he goes through people who are figuring out how much you know that we could just all be downloaded into some sort of supercomputer super at least for now to run the same amount of stuff that's going on in just your and my heads in a supercomputer would require something like 13 megawatts a day, something like enough to power 10,000 houses. Now, our brain needs 25 megawatts. You know, we're barely lightning, we're barely, you know, making a light bulb light. And somehow, our emergent properties of our brain are bringing that and making that all possible. Whereas just a purely technological creation of that same potential power and whether or not that supercomputer would be able to be self-conscious. I have no idea. And I'm not going there right now. That's a different conversation, but just to have that number of, 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 of neuro neuro connections and power them means that to me, that there's something else going on in our, in our bodies that go beyond purely a mechanism that happened to biologically evolve. So that's one of the things that I say, I can't prove, It's not a proof of God. It's not a proof of the soul. But to me, it is real evidence that helps buttress my position. If we found, for example, that a supercomputer could work uh, that would require 25 watts um, and could be equivalent to our brain, then that would be a negative piece of evidence for me. But I think there is so much evidence out there that something else is going on. Well beyond our imagining, and can we figure out how to align ourselves with whatever that is, and that does have something to do with soulness. it does have something do the spark of God. it does have something to do with it's not all here by chance we're not just some we're not just a few lucky devils who you know
0: by the force of chance, are here having this conversation. Your father's a Holocaust survivor, and he 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 weighed like 60 pounds right when he got out of the camp when he was liberated by from the Americans by the Americans from the camp yes, something right? like that yes what did that do with his relationship to the divine to god like how did that affect his own religious outlook and faith so my father uh, you
1: know he my father was deported from his time in Sveksna, Lithuania, when he hadn't yet turned uh, 14. But he was a young, big, strapping fellow. So he was sent to a, he was sent to a, he was enslaved at that point by the Nazis and sent to the Svetlin heidekrug work camp. Then he went to, um, he was sent to Auschwitz where he was. And I mean this in a, in a way, you know, quote unquote, lucky that he was then sent to Warsaw to clean up after the Warsaw ghetto uprising with another slave detachment. And then he was sent to Dachau afterward. So he only spent three months in Auschwitz because if he would have stayed there, he clearly, I wouldn't be here today. And when he got out, he was, he was in the 60s of pounds. He was, he was nothing in terms of, I mean, he, bare, he was probably days, hours, certainly not more than weeks away from death. Definitely not more than weeks. And he had the great privilege of, the great privilege, I don't know if that's the right word, but he had the great good fortune to be liberated by the Americans who took him out, sent him to a field hospital, where it took him a year to be back in, in, in health. And then he ended up in Chicago, and he knew with certainty that, um, that uh, there were miracles that got him through. Like, I'm looking behind you, and there's, this, there's some sort of sign that's tilted to the right, if it were tilted to the left, my father would have been dead. If your computer would have been two inches in the opposite direction, he would have been dead. he knew so many small,
0: literally tiny, tiny things. This is like the butterfly effect, dead. right? The little, littlest things in life. He saw it. I mean, yeah. if he would have been in one line, I don't know if I could really
1: talk this whole hour about my father's experience. If he would have been in one line, if he would have been one person ahead, one person behind, if he would have been, I'm, I'm, I'm being totally serious here about how small his chances of survival would have been. And if they were just in a foot different of space, he'd be dead. So he knew with certainty, he felt with certainty that there was something that was getting him from Svexna to Chicago. But on the other hand, he also couldn't forgive God who had saved him for the fact that his father was murdered, his brothers were murdered. His aunts, his uncles, his cousins. My closest relative is a second cousin once removed, who happened to be away in Palestine at the time at a kibbutz. And that's where that second cousin once removed line comes from. So he couldn't forgive he was angry at God in a in a very serious way. And it's a I grew up and maybe really the the, you know, I we talked about in the beginning how how this came from conversations, but in a certain kind of way, this book has been brewing. In my I me mean, maybe for a long time, you know, uh, for, a, for a lot longer. Did, um, did you
0: grow up attending synagogue? I did.
1: My father, I'll tell you, that's interesting too. So my father took going to synagogue, you know, uh, seriously on the holidays and on many Sabbaths, but it was very interesting because he and some of his survivor friends, and I didn't get this for many years, They would go to synagogue, they would talk during services, they would doze off during the rabbi's sermon. After the end, before the end of services, they would congregate out back and have a glass of schnapps or, you know, whiskey or scotch or whatever was was available. They wouldn't pray, actually. They were giving God the silent treatment. And I realized that they were there. It was like they were almost saying, God, I know you're there, but you know what you did to me? I'm not talking to you. And and at a very deep level, I sort of believe that God knew He was getting the silent treatment and 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 accepted that there was no but, doubt. But what a beautiful
0: side. thing to be able to belong, even though you're in this state of kind of disbelief or silent treatment, right? There's a beauty to that. That yeah. that it's like it's sort of the Lord. I believe, helped my unbelief. You know, like this kind of where where even unbelief can be a form of faith. That sounds like it, it connected these. Survivors together in deep and meaningful
1: ways. For sure. I mean, I, I'm, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking back on it now, and it wasn't clear to me at the time. You know, some things can't be taught, they have to be caught. And that's one of those things where you just have to witness it. I don't even know if I'm conveying the full power of it right now using words. Um, it was just, it was, it was so it. I always, I grew up with that. I grew up with my father, you know, telling me these stories and knowing and him knowing. Both believing with certainty that God and that also not being able to forgive God. I mean, on Yom Kippur, which is our Day of Atonement among Jews, uh, you know, I think he would have maybe thought God needs to atone.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is there's this there's this line, I think by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I think he was quoting somebody Jewish. It was around the World War II. Yeah, when Bonhoeffer said, "Only the suffering God can help." Right, and so it's only this God that. That is bound up with. There's a great line um, by a guy named um, Nicholas Walter who's a Christian philosopher. Is, is it was it retired from? It was at uh, Calvin College, then went to Yale's one of the most pre- prominent philosophers of religion in the country. And he wrote a book called "Lament for His Son." His son died in a ro- an a rock climbing accident, and he wrote for a year. Um, his son was like in his twenties when he died, and and he has this. He has this beautiful line. I, 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 I don't know if I, I'm going to get choked when I say it, but he's, he's the tears of God are the meaning of history. Mm-hmm. And it seems that, that the Bible, right, it doesn't, I mean, you don't suggest that the Bible gives us the answer to the problem of evil, but it does give us the power of presence and meaning and purpose to confront it, to struggle with it, right, to, to struggle with, with the suffering and, and, and existential Plight that every human being, no matter what kind of privileges you have, or so everybody is touched by this, right? And, and and you seem to paint a picture where this this God, whose tears are the meaning of history, I mean, this it's not going to solve, it's not going to explain away the problem of evil. But gosh, it seems that you're you're it gives you a resource unlike anything else in the midst of the evil. So I'll say a
1: couple of things on that. First of all, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a hero of mine too. I mean, he was living happily, he was outside of Germany, and returned. To combat Nazism and then ended up in a concentration camp. I mean, he was a hero, a martyr, um, just, uh, uh, you know, somebody we should talk about and
0: all know about. And uh, the guards even loved him. I mean, he, he, he was kind of a pastor to the guard to his own jailers. I mean, he, he was this remarkable human being. You know, it's interesting, and I, we'll
1: come back to what your, your other question it But I was I, I tell this story in the book. I visited uh, I visited South Africa. I visited Robin Island, Robin's Island, which is where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. And um, I I'm, I had the great privilege to spend time with uh, 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 Tulami Mambosa, who was in prison for most of the years with Nelson Mandela and was down the way with him. And he took us into Nelson Mandela's prison cell, which was much smaller than either room we're living. I got claustrophobic even with the door open. That's, you know, was one of those places. And he said that it always moved. He said, even the guards came to Mandela for advice. Yeah. He said, when they were having trouble at home, They were, they were, he said the new guards would always be harsh with them, would beat them. But he said after a while, the guards, and that was frustrating to the people running the prison because they'd have to move in new guards because the guards knew that there was a presence, a holiness. This was, there was wisdom in this man. I mean, he would, Tulami would have said they didn't go to him, but they did go to Mandela. And and so that's really uh, striking, striking me. But here's the thing about the Bible, and going to your question, is that the Bible essentially presents life as a series of tests: will we do the right thing? Or will we do the wrong thing? I mean, that's what all the stories, in the end, are about. I mean, Moses, you know, by defending the the the, the Israelite who's being beaten by the Egyptian, ends up being. Ends up having to flee Egypt and goes, spends 40 years in Midian, never knowing he's going to come back, assuming presumably that he's never coming back. He goes from being a rock star prince to walking around with manure on, you know, in his sandals. Sheep manure. He he does the right thing when he's faced the test. And if you go on and on, you you know, Judah, you know, talking to Joseph or the Viceroy, uh, he's willing to say to become a slave in order to save his brother. It just goes on and on. But I think one of the most important stories in a way that, that gets at this, and there's no answer for the Holocaust, but there's a way of thinking about something, which is the book of Esther. So in the book of Esther, you have Queen Esther. She wins the beauty pageant, becomes the queen, and nobody knows she's Jewish in the story. And Mordecai tells her, thats word to her, that Haman and the king have decreed that the Jews are going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped out on this certain day, and she sends back a message. She sends him back some clothes, and she sends him back a message. Look, I can't really talk to the king. It's not really a good idea. I could be killed. I could be killed myself. And Mordecai sends her back a message saying, "Don't think that you're there by accident. If you don't do anything, you know, in the end, the Jews will be saved, but um, you'll perish, and you're whether figuratively or from history, you'll perish. But if you act now. If you act, redemption is possible, and so the answer is. And she does, and she takes her life into her hands, and she, and it ultimately ends up where um, Haman is deposed, and the Jews aren't all killed. But here's the thing: in World War II, there were people who knew what was going on. There were people among the Allies. There was the New York Times that knew what was going on. There were a lot of places that knew what was going on, and really didn't publish it. I mean, there's a great book by Lauren Leff. Um, Buried by the Times. They have complete information and yet barely mentioned um, what was going on. When uh, when Auschwitz was liberated, it was two sentences that one point five million people perished. there. Jews. It didn't even really. I don't even know if it said the Jews. Um, So uh, people knew Morgan thought secretary treasury knew um, Rabbi Stephen Wise knew uh, Roosevelt certainly knew the War Department knew. And when there was a conference in 1938, to, to, to the Bermuda, so-called Bermuda Conference, asking countries to take in the Jews from Germany. At the time, Germany just wanted to get rid of the Jews. They hadn't come up with the final solution. That was in 1942 that they really came up with. We're going to kill them all. We're going to murder them all. Um, he, at the Bermuda Conference, the Canadian prime minister is, is uh, ascribed to have uh, sent word that no Jews is too many. So there were plenty of people who had an opportunity to stand up. There were plenty, and it wouldn't have been that hard and 6 million wouldn't have perished, maybe some number, but not 6 million and war could have been averted for a, in a lot of different ways, but people failed to test and the Bible is saying we face tests. You got to stand up. You got to do what's right when you, when, when the situation calls for it, because it's so easy to just avert our eyes. It's so easy and, and it's comfortable and you know, Moses would have been a lot happier, quote unquote, had he just not looked at the Egyptian beating the Israelite, gone back to the gone back to the uh um to the palace in his cushy life with his probably harem and just said, Oh, forget about it. Or when Pharaoh's daughter didn't reach out her arm. She knew she was gonna get into trouble for that potentially, but she didn't avert her eyes. It would have been so easy for her just to let that little baby basket float down the Nile. And you know, think, okay, what's for lunch?
0: Yeah, I'm reminded of that verse in Deuteronomy, right? 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, your God, but the promises revealed belong to you and your children forever. And mm-hmm. so it's it seems like there's so much stuff we're on a need-to-know basis, and we don't need to know. Like, it's above our pay grade. <laughs> but there right. are promises, right? That, that in the midst of evil, in the midst of sin and struggle, there's <laughs> grace, redemption. There's the possibility for new life. You know, there's there's a God whose tears are the meaning of history that that offers us compassion and offers us offers us chance to be partners in compassion. I mean, and these things are are the promises that seem to make uh, the life of faith worth living. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's what faith
1: is all about in the end. Faith in the God of the Bible. Let me put it that. Let me say that is all about thinking that we each have a purpose here on earth. You know. There's two really, really important days in, in everybody's life. One is when they're born and we don't have any control of that. And the second one, we have a lot of control over that, which is figuring out why we're here. Yeah. What is our what is our what are we gonna each do to make this world a little better place? And it could be just the smallest thing. It could be something major. But what is what what is our mission here? And it's easier to go through life without trying to figure that out. I mean, it's more comfortable, just you know, entertain oneself. And, and I think that's in a way what prayer is all about to me. It's about trying, it's about a a daily introspection about what needs to be done in this world. What am
0: I doing? And how do I get myself there? Well, I'll tell you, for those who take that quest of finding their purpose and meaning seriously, they could uh, do a lot worse than starting with your book, uh, In Good Faith. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it. And thank you. This was a really good conversation. So you you went deep fast. So I, I'm glad. I thank you for that too. <laughs> the pleasure was on mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.